Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Anne Wand. On today's show, we will be talking with Dr. Joanna Gillar, teacher of the Hedge School, community storyteller, and founder of the Giants Garden Project, designed as a playmaking space for children and their parents to encourage literacy and sustainable interaction with the world around them. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Joanna, would you like to start? Sure. I'm having a spicy tomato juice and um, a little bit about me. Well, I am from Sussex. I'm a Sussex-based storyteller. Um, My background is that I did um, a BA in Scotland in literature. I did a creative writing MA in UEA, Norfolk, and then I was writing a novel about Prague and I've got Czech uh, grandparents. So I decided to move to Prague for a month to finish my novel. I ended up not finishing that novel and living there for 10 years. And uh, when I came back, I came back, I married a Czech husband, brought him back to England and came back. And I knew that I wanted to do a PhD, but it really took me sort of quite a while to decide on the topic and eventually I decided on um, fairy tale, the relationship between fairy tales and ecology, specifically looking at shape-shifting, so looking at how we today tell stories in which humans become animals and animals become humans and how those storytellings have changed today in the context of our contemporary ecological crisis. So how often where sort of in the 16th, 17th century, there was a, a, a fear of becoming animal. It was it was a curse. Uh, very often uh, nowadays, it's it's often it's often the desire to become animal. So it represents our deepening desire to reconnect ourselves to a lost uh, wilderness. So I did that at the University of Chichester at the Institute of Fairy Tale, Folklore, and Fantasy, and I I sort of split half the research was research in libraries and half was going into schools and working with young people and asking them about fairy tales and animals in fairy tales and how they think we can use these stories to discuss our relationship to the non-human world, which was wonderful. And we had some wonderful discussions. Um, So that was my doctoral research. And I graduated in, I passed my Viva in 2015 and um, almost on the same day found out that I was pregnant with my son, who is now two and a half. Wow, that is quite a story. I've, I've got to say, for somebody who's a, a massive Harry Potter fan, I um, would love to talk to you more about the, you know, looking at animals transferring into humans at some point, and maybe we might be able to fit that in. But for now, since uh, the previous episode talked about alternative career options for academics, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners how you came up with the idea for your current project, The Giant's Garden, and what that's about. Absolutely. Well, to be honest, it's still, I still feel like it's incipient. It's still beginning. It's still unfolding. Um, It was run as a pilot project uh, last autumn. So we ran 10 sessions last autumn and we're beginning again in the spring. So Giant's Garden is a space for families, particularly a space for mums with mums on maternity leave, mums with babies and toddlers to get together and uh, work. I say work and it sounds weird and it sounds kind of boring but actually I think one of the things that really struck me when I gave birth to my son was that um, 
the sense of isolation of new mums. And um, I say isolation, um, you know, I wasn't particularly isolated. My my own mum lives sort of two minutes across the garden because we built a house in her garden. Um, you know, I've got an amazing network of friends, but just that sense that as mothers with with new babies we're we're so segregated in the four walls that we're we're in and um i felt at this time you know mums are supposed to be at the center of communities they're supposed to be surrounded by life and activity and and joy and celebration and instead you know 82 percent of new mothers talk about feeling lonely and um and that i think that represents something deeply wrong and one of the things that i felt was just weird was the fact that you know there was um so much to do that couldn't be done joyfully had to be done in a hurry so we expect the mums yeah to look after the house to look after the child to do the cleaning and the cooking but we don't do it in a joyful space we can't do it in a joyful space because we're lonely with it we're we're kind of uh, we have to do it at the same time as be on our child at the same time as give to have time to ourselves and i know that in traditional communities it wouldn't have been the case because it wouldn't have been single homes taken care of by single people. And one of the things about this that made me sad was the fact that it really develops this deep dichotomy between work and play. So we sort of have time when we're having fun with our children and then time when we're trying to do everything else around the house and um, try and sort of when our child is sleeping or, or, or you know, even when, when we're distracting them with screen time or, or something. And I just think that dichotomy between work and play is not only sad, I think it's dangerous dangerous because it takes away from um, the ability to really respect, be respectful towards and see the the enchantment of doing normal things, cooking, you know, um, keeping the house. And so that was the first impulse for the Giants Garden, that I wanted a space where mums could get together and do normal things in an enchanted way and the kids could witness this sense of enchantment. Um, so what we did in the very first session was we looked around our garden, which has a lot of trees, apple trees, and there were lots of cooking apples that we hadn't used yet. So we got sort of 10 kids and we picked all of the cooking apples and then we... Um, we cut them, chopped them all together, and then we turned them into a massive apple, um, apple, what do you call it? Apple. Apple um, crumble. Apple crumble. No, well, we, we made apple juice and then we made it into apple puffs. Oh, um, delicious. So, uh, and it was lovely. And I think one of the things is that we had kids from kind of zero to, to, to eight and they just love being invited to do the work. And there's been a lot of recent research about how kids actually love being invited to help but they're not often invited because their kind of time frames are different to ours and their level to create chaos is different to ours and their level of order is different to us. So we don't know how to make that space for them. But I think that space is crucial. So that's the first thing that motivated the Giants Garden. And the second thing that motivated it is that um, similar, that sense of enchantment. So I did a lot of my PhD research around people like David Abram, who talk about the fact that imagination was originally a medium by which we connect to the natural world. So it wasn't a medium by which we pick up a book and enter this world of 
book or wasn't a medium by which we, you know, watch television and, and the moving pictures on the screens take us into some some fantasy world. It was originally a medium that actually took us into the world out there. It was a medium by which we saw the trees as alive and the flowers as alive and, 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 and things like that. And that was what animism originally meant, that sense of being able to use the imagination as almost as a kind of third eye just to to communicate with everything out there not as dead but as living and um and i just saw in my child and in 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 the children around me the, the potency of the power of the imagination and how i didn't know as a mum how to help him do what he wanted to do naturally which was to take this potency this 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 incredibly potent tool or medium and and allow it to kind of plug him into the world and so that's what I set up the Giants Garden for to find a space where we kind of take our imaginations and pour them back into the world really. That's fantastic. I think um, something that you know kind of resonates with me in, in hearing the work that you're doing is this idea of connecting with the world around him and there seems to be some discussions about you know, especially those that sort of get caught up in the day-to-day, those particularly that live in maybe more urban areas, um, this desire maybe to sort of step back and focus more on, you know, the trees, for example. And and there also seems to be, and, and I don't mean to digress, but that this idea of focusing on mindfulness and yeah. sort of being aware that there are things outside yourself that maybe you can't control but that you need to just sort of go with it and be a part of it. Um, Would you say mindfulness kind of ties into some of the work that you're doing as well? Um, that's interesting. I would say yes, but not within the kind of, yeah, I don't use the, I don't use the name mindfulness because I'm not a trained mindfulness teacher, but I think that sense of Almost we need mindfulness as adults because we're surrounded by busyness and our brains are very, very used to kind of disconnecting from our bodies and from the world around us. And I think kids, for kids, mindfulness is, is a great tool um, that's almost used to kind of ameliorate all of this adult stuff that's coming into their world. Because I think maybe naturally they don't, you know, not automatically they go outside and they're so with their surroundings um, that, you know, you don't necessarily need to take them on a meditative pathway because it, it comes very naturally. Do you see what I mean? Um, but having said that, I think that, that that meditation and mindfulness are really fantastic tools to teach children as they grow older and kind of have to mediate between these two worlds of the world being immersed totally in the natural world and in their bodies and the world that's more kind of thinking and analytical that's kind of slowly developing. So yes, I think mindfulness is a brilliant tool. But I think with the Giant's Garden, it's more like, okay, let's just hold a space where kids can do stuff and um, and be immersed via imagination, really. Fantastic. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up with you, since uh, the Giant's Garden focuses quite a bit on environmental awareness, and we've talked a little bit before the show about this idea of, of 
um, kind of confronting and dealing with uh, climate change. And I know your website talks a bit about um, plastic in the oceans, for example, is one of the stories you sort of um, discuss with people during workshops. And this week I came across an interesting article published by NPR, National Public Radio in the U.S., and it talked about how Inuit parents in Canada use storytelling to teach their children lessons on how to control their anger. And I was wondering how you as a practitioner use storytelling as a tool to describe climate change to children. That's a really good question. Yeah, I read that article. It's it's a brilliant article, isn't it? Really fascinating. Absolutely. Um, And just evidences the power of stories. So I think I probably would take a a step back um, and say, how do stories um, allow us to think about our embeddedness in the world? Um, And the fact that we've lost that embeddedness in the world is one of the things that has caused, I think, climate change, because it's allowed us to, you know, give birth to these massive technologies and and, and uses and systems that actually are profoundly disconnected from the world. And I think um, what stories can do at a very basic level is to kind of think about how to reset everything, how to reset the frame, how to be like, okay, actually, we did used to be much more embedded in the world in which we are. So to give you an example, I work a lot with traditional fairy tales. And fairy tales, very often you have the sense of the animal guide. So um, for example, you might have three brothers and they have a quest to get water, healing water from a well, for example. And uh, the first brother goes out and he's absolutely... um, goal orientated, focused on his quest, you know, and he sees um, a frog by the side of the road and the frog says, I'm hungry. Give me, give me some, some of your bread. And he says, no, 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 here's the bread. I'm going, I'm going straight to, to, to where I'm going. And he doesn't find where he's going. And the second brother does the same, but the fir- third brother stops and shares his bread with the toad or the frog. And then of course the frog tells him where to go. And we often dismiss these as kind of silly, childish, significant details. But for me, they're absolutely essential because they're representing how um, we can't do anything in this world if we if we try and, and work by ourselves. And um, and originally our, our sort of workings within the world were um, our intricacies um, sort of within the embedded within the world, if that makes sense. Um so I think I think stories are really useful for asking questions about our relationship to the wild. And they're also useful for just teaching us to walk within the world with wonder. So I think, you know, they're just useful for exciting us about the world. In in a fairy tale, you know, it's as easy to become, to, to have a conversation with, with a wolf as a hive of bees or a rosebush as a person. And, you know, you can become, you can grow feathers and or grow sc- scales with, with, with whispers of, of the wind or, or, or the spell of a witch so things are much more fluid in a fairy tale and it almost gives us permission to exist in the world with that kind of uh, active natural living imagination and 
And it allows us to kind of, from that, from that wonder, from that awe, from that imagination, is born respect. And if respect is born, then we make decisions that are decisions which are more embedded decisions and are decisions which take into account all of the wonder of the planet that we're in. Um, you know, climate change, biodiversity loss it is is it's not only horrendous, it's completely bizarre that we're in the midst of it, but um, to such um, such an extent that we're so, we're not responding to it as we should be, as particularly not the governments. Um, and and it, it, if you think within a different mindset where all of our well-being and livelihood is tied into the great network of wonder in the world, then the fact that we're losing sort of 150 to 200 um, species of plants, insects, animals every 24 hours, which is the latest research, is is something that we can't continue to function like that. It doesn't make any sense within that framework. And therefore, I think on a very basic level, stories can change the system. That is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, I guess to sort of kind of round this out, I suppose, because this is quite, you know, a, a heavy discussion. And I think um, there's a lot that can really stem from this in terms of the work that you're doing that maybe people who are um, unaware of the idea or the gift of storytelling, I think that that message somehow gets lost and that mm -hmm. storytelling is sort of reserved for small children without, and, it, and it's almost as if when you become a parent and you look at the old stories again, you start to go, oh, I remember that story. And you find yourself, at least I find myself going through old books. And, you know, before I know it, my daughter's got books all over the floor and I'm going, I really hope she likes these stories. And I think you make a really good point in that, you know, these stories don't necessarily need to die when we're children and that mm -hmm. there's something that comes with continuing that tradition as you get older. Uh, mm -hmm. I think of a, a story in, in particular, and, and maybe this is a bit of a sidetrack, but in terms of stories providing lessons, um, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar, but um, some some individuals know that I'm, I'm quite fascinated by, by folklore. I always have been. It's been a side interest of mine for years. And I remember some time ago I was uh, researching uh, about Irish folklore in particular and looking at the fairies. And one of the stories talked about how, um, you know, if you do, if you go out late at night, uh, one of the fairies, they'll, they'll come and they'll eat you. And in that particular story that I think had been documented in the late 19th century, uh, the person who was giving the story had said, admittedly, I think these stories are created as a means to keep children from going out at night. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if that's what it takes to keep your children safe, then that's important. Mm. And I think within the the gift that you're sort of giving children is that, yes, these are stories, and yes, this is a chance for you to use your imagination, but that there's something important that comes from that story, and I really mm. hope that that resonates with you as you get older. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a massive question. What what were the purpose of these stories? And, you know, I, I love the fact that in the, in the article about the Inuits that you're talking about, you know, they quite, you know, without without the kind of uh, qualms that we would have about it, that they were quite willing to sort of terrify their children with these stories of monsters who would come from the sea and eat them up if they went too close to the sea and things like that. Um, 
as opposed to shouting at them or threatening them, which I think is a really interesting, you know, interesting, different system. Um, one of the things that I've, t- I've mentioned, David Abram, and, and one of the things that he, he's an ecologist and philosopher and worked with indigenous tribes across the world, but also with sort of Western folklore. And one of the things that he argues is that these fairy tales and folk tales um, were not originally just entertainment. That's like a massive, a massive mistake to think that, that actually um, they were originally sort of recipes or guidebooks for how to live well within the world. So originally stories might have been, um, stories about a plant would have had within it a coded message as to whether the plant was poisonous, what it could have been used for, um, you know, how to use it, stories about a flood would have been encoded messages about how to survive in a flood, that type of thing. Now, it's very easy to get all excited and say, oh, yeah, these fairy tales go back to ancient times when, when, when and they're, they're kind of hidden, hidden messages about how to survive in the world. That's probably not the case. Uh, a lot of the stories, a lot of the fairy tales that we know they might have had roots a long, long time ago, but obviously they've 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 had layers from all of the different cultures in which they've been built up, and they've had purposes from all of the different cultures and from which they've been built up. That's one of the things that I love about fairy tales. You know, they carry or they're or they're palimpsestic. They carry all of these layers of all of these different cultures because every time a teller tells a story, they they tell it with a different message to it, and that's what storytellers do. Um, so I think. Um, yet it's really important with these stories to acknowledge they might go back quite a long way they might not some of them we can't ever know because if they do go back it would have been to oral times when it, they weren't recorded if they you know so we don't know where they came from and there's a lot of sort of debate in in fairy tale academia about where they first started um but we do know that every time they were told they they kind of held the messages of the particular culture and and that that for me is really interesting and you can kind of look at them. So, for example, um, you can look at tales. That, I, I also teach an online fairy tale course for adults. Um, That's at the Hedge that- School, is that correct? That's at the Hedge School, yes, okay. called the Fairy Tale Atlas. Um, and what we do is we look at these five fairy tales, Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, The Frog King, that we think we know. And we kind of take them back layer by layer by layer and just find out what all of the energy that we've lost by kind of thinking that we know a single version. And um, yeah, that's quite exciting. So that's kind of a long, a long answer to your question. No, but I think it's it's one of those things where it can't be answered in a short period of time. And, you know, with podcasts, we just try to provide just a little bit of a snippet. And then hopefully that provides enough of a snippet that the readers can then, you know, find ways to access your website, for example, and then kind of explore things from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose uh, stepping back a little bit, uh, one of the things that has come up as a result of of these podcasts is this idea of trying to take the research that you have learned as a result of, of your doctorate, for example, at graduate studies. And there's been discussions about starting, you know, some people call it a side hustle. Some people call it a full-time job. Um, but I guess what I'd like to know is, is do you have any advice for people who are thinking of, of maybe stepping out of their doctoral shells a bit and doing something similar to the work that you're doing? Um, 
you know, what advice would you have for, for people who are thinking of, of maybe starting a business or their own project? I think that's a hard question because I, I feel like I don't have it sorted yet um, myself. And I, I didn't go back to academia after my son was born. Um, and part of me regrets that. And part of me feels like it, it, it kind of followed the trajectory of my own research because my research was about the relationship between fantasy, reality, imagination, and ecology. And uh, it felt like having a son... I was, uh, there was so much work in that space of mothers and toddlers and babies and, and, and imagination and direction and community that it was almost like a calling. Like I, I wouldn't have been being honest to my research to then go back to university, even though I miss it. And maybe one day I, I would like to, I think, you know, I think, um, it's, it's also, it takes courage to um, sort of be like, okay, maybe the university, the academic path isn't the right thing. Now, it shouldn't be the only thing. And I guess, and also it takes giving yourself permission, I think. And um, I don't know if this is useful advice, but for me, I think, I think that kind of sense of permission is really important because it feels to me like the world is becoming more urgent. Um, we can see from, from all of these amazing climate strikes that, that are young people are doing um the, the world needs change and actually it, it change you know often academia can be quite insulated and to hold conversations between academia and the rest of the world so even to be a mediator to have that access to the academic resources and knowledge and and institutions but at the same time to take that to work you know with people who aren't in that sort of ivory tower it just seems to me to be responding to this urgency and to be saying, okay, we need to have conversations that are cross, um, you know, cross education, cross barriers, cross um, just going through the whole of society. So I think, you know, we really have a right, those of us who have an academic background and who feel drawn to do something elsewhere, to give ourselves that permission and say, yes, okay, now the times are urgent. We need to have these cross conversations and we need to do the work where we feel it's needed. Don't know if that's good. <laughs> that absolutely, I think, is a perfect way to uh, round out the end of this show. And uh, with that, I think that's from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Anne Wand. Um, I'd like to thank you again, uh, Dr. Gillar, for joining us at the studio this afternoon. We will be putting information up regarding your website. If people would like to contact you through the Facebook page or through our website, um, we'd absolutely be more than happy to uh, help you promote your business and help it to grow in any way, shape or form. Uh, for those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to explore our Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails One, as well as our blog at coffeeandcocktails1.wordpress.com, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.